Hey everybody, Joseph here, one of the pastors at the First Presbyterian Church of Flint, and I wanted to welcome you to our sermon podcast, a show that features the latest sermons preached here at First Pres. But first, a little bit about us. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation, proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. We have a vibrant and thriving ministry to our neighbors here in Flint and are engaged weekly in worship, faith formation, a dynamic ministry to kids and teenagers, and community building across generations. You can learn more at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, you can stop by any Sunday at 930 to worship with us. We'd love to welcome you and your family to worship. Now, here's this week's sermon. The scripture says that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, let the church say, Amen. In our gospel reading today, some people come to Jesus and they bring with them a recent newspaper headline. They bring with them a tweet. They bring with them a clip from the latest cable news channel. Rabbi, did you hear about the brutal murder of those Galileans carried out by the Romans? They were in the middle of worship when Pilate ordered them to be killed. Did you hear about this? The text doesn't tell us why the people wanted, or why these people are bringing this to Jesus, but church, I've been in ordained ministry for nearly a decade now, and I get it. These people are trying to understand what's going on in their world, and maybe they've got some opinions of their own on the matter, and so they clip out the newspaper article from the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and they bring it to Jesus, and they say, what do you think about this one? I don't think they're trying to test Jesus or trick him, but they are inviting Jesus to make either a political statement or a theological one. Politically, perhaps they wanted to gauge Jesus' reaction to the brutality of the Romans by demonstrating just how awful the Romans are being to God's chosen people. They're killing worshipers now, Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? What does Messiah think about the Romans killing people at worship? Maybe they thought that this headline would be enough to get Jesus to comment publicly and openly against the Romans. Or maybe, as it might have been the case, the the Galileans who were killed at the temple that day were known conspirators who had formed a violent rebellion against Rome that Rome caught wind of and ended with their assassination during worship. And maybe the people asking Jesus wanted to know which side Jesus was on. Are you on the side of Rome or are you on the side of this rebellion? Or maybe they didn't want a political reaction. Maybe they wanted a theological opinion. Maybe they wanted Jesus to explain why things like this occur. Why do tragedies 
happen? Why do power-hungry armies and empires commit atrocities and God seems to stand on the sideline? Maybe they wanted answers to their deep questions of why evil in this world always seems to be winning. Oftentimes, we approach news reports like this in our day similarly, don't we? We are incensed that God does not, from our vantage point, appear to be actively working against the unjust loss of life. We want God to step in and do something right now, right this second. Other times, we just want to know why. Perhaps we have a coworker or someone we know who never ceases to point out the horrific violence committed in the name of organized religion and wants to know what kind of God would allow these things to happen. Perhaps we have listened to another news cycle's reporting of war in Europe, earthquakes, tsunamis, outbreaks of disease, and we just want to know why. Does God allow these things to happen? Or more venomously, as some pundits are wa- want to suggest, are these perhaps divine punishments for human sin? Jesus is faced with a very specific news story, Galilean worshipers massacred by Roman troops. On March 24, 1980, Some of you may remember hearing about the assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero in El Salvador. Romero was an outspoken critic of the recent military dictatorship in El Salvador, which had committed countless atrocities against the poor in that country. The day before his assassination, Romero preached a Sunday Lenten sermon calling, pleading, begging, to the Salvadoran soldiers who might be listening, those who claimed to be Christians, and he begged them to repent from their work of slaughtering innocents and to choose a different way. The next day, Monday morning, he was in the middle of of morning mass. He had raised the chalice filled with wine up for consecration when a rifle shot rang out and killed him. Immediately, his blood became mixed with the blood of Christ. Did you hear about the Galileans, Jesus? What does Jesus say? First, Jesus asks a rhetorical question. Do you think that those who died were more sinful than others? In other words, do you think that God punished them for something? Do you think that God was demanding holiness in such a way that the death of these worshipers satisfied his thirst. Do you think these people were more sinful than others? And if that sounds like a weird question to you, it was not a weird question in Jesus' day because suffering and tragedy and loss like this were often connected to personal sin. You were being punished for something. If you think about the book of Job, Job is wondering, why am I suffering? And what do his friends say? Well, you must have done something wrong. You, maybe, you didn't, maybe you sinned while you were sleeping, Job. You did something, right? This doesn't just happen to innocent people. But what does Jesus say? Do these, were these more sinful? No, he says. And I say it like that because in Greek, the word Jesus uses for no is more emphatic than just a simple, eh, not really. 
It's like, by no means, like absolutely not. If we were in a different context, we might use a different word and say, no. No, Jesus says. Sudden and tragic loss of life is not divine retribution for human sin. There is no hint of Jesus demurring on this point in Luke's telling. God, it turns out, is not in the business of killing in order to slake his divine anger. Someone say amen. amen. Only frail humanity could be so pernicious as to create environments for tragedy to occur and then blame God when they do. When these horrific things occur, we should not think that God is at work punishing through tragedy the sins of humanity. Jesus says as much in his response to the news of these dead Galileans. And then Jesus turns around and presents his own headline back to them, this time a horrific accident. What about the 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell, he said. Do you suppose they were worse sinners than others in Jerusalem? You don't need to know that the Tower of Siloam was a tower on the eastern wall of Jerusalem to appreciate Jesus' story. We all have a story of a sudden, accidental death. Something that happened for no apparent reason. A farming accident, a car plunging into a lake, a teenage driver hit broadside by another vehicle, a collapsing building, a house fire, and so on. We know what Jesus means. But again, Jesus is clear. God does not inflict these things upon the sinful. These are not divine punishments for sin. That is not God's normative course of action. But don't miss this, because in each of these two stories, Jesus doesn't just leave it at, God isn't punishing you, but he goes and he flips the script a bit. He says, but I tell you in both times, but I tell you, if you do not repent, if you do not change your hearts and lives, you will be destroyed in the same way. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. You're searching for political or theological answers to this tragedy, and in your quest, you're not seeing how you might need to change your own life. You're not seeing how you might be complicit in the ongoing work of sin in this world. You're not aware of just how deep the rabbit hole of human sin actually goes. These events aren't caused by God's divine punishment. They are often caused by sin-filled humans doing things to one another in sin-filled contexts and governments that are filled by, with sin-filled laws and ruled by sin-filled autocrats. This is exactly what human sin does. It enshrines itself in political platforms of both sides of the aisle. It enshrines itself in racial prejudice, in the attitude which is condescending to the poor, in the shameful rhetoric directed against immigrants and refugees, in the poorly guarded portals of our mouth which often speak horrible things about others by virtue of their income, education, skin color, weight, and so on. Sin creeps in and it plants itself along all of our virtues and it just does the slow work of choking the life out of what is good. Jesus says if we do not repent, if we do not acknowledge the presence of sin in our lives, if we do not stop soaking in it, then we're liable for destruction. 
It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, God is not punishing the world with tragedies, but enough about that. Let's talk about you. Have you confessed the way that you have failed to live up to the measure of God's kingdom? Have you changed your hearts and lives because of the good news of the gospel? Have you truly grappled with what it might mean for you to live in God's kingdom in such a way that your attitudes and behaviors and beliefs and values and actions promote that world? So Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them a story. There was a farmer who owned a vineyard. He planted a fig tree. One harvest season, years later, he went to check on the fig tree. No figs. The next harvest season, he went out to check on that same fig tree. Still, no figs. Third harvest season, still no figs. So he says to the gardener, look, I've been checking this fig tree for three years. I still don't see any fruit. I'm going to cut it down and plant something else. It's just wasting all of the good soil that I've prepared. The gardener said, sir, let's give it one more year. I'll dig around it. I'll put some fertilizer down. I'll watch it. Maybe it will produce fruit next year, and if not, then let's cut it down. In this fictional orchard of fig trees, there's one tree that hasn't gotten the message that it needs to start growing figs. Its buds are empty, its branches are bare, it's an eyesore, and it is literally sucking nutrients out of the soil. And because there's only one tree in this vineyard cited as fruitless, the problem can't be with the soil or the planting, since the other trees in the same soil are bearing fruit. Now, the owners let it go for three years, which to me is remarkable and a testament to the grace of this landowner. But it's even more remarkable than it seems. Fig trees can take anywhere between 8 to 10 years of growing before they will grow any fruit. And I know this is a parable, and it's not supposed to be overanalyzed too much, but don't tell my seminary professors. We're going to do it anyway. In Flint, Michigan, we might not know anything about fig trees. All I know about them is that Paul really, really likes figs, and I really, really do not. But Jesus's audience in first century Judea certainly did know about fig trees. So here's this owner, and he would have planted this tree a decade earlier, and he's paced through his orchard year after year watching this tree come up from a sapling. And every year, it looks more and more promising. And after eight years, maybe some of the other fig trees are starting to bear early fruit. But, you know, this tree isn't. And that's okay. That's okay. Some trees bear fruit later. Nine years, and now most of the other trees are bearing fruit, but still not this one. Ten years, and his orchard is doing great. Still nothing on this one tree. Eleven years, twelve years, thirteen. Wait a minute. What's going on with this tree? This one's still bare. He planted it a decade earlier. He'd waited three years after it should have been bearing fruit. What's the deal? The soil's good, weather's good, sun's shining, the wasps are pollinating the other figs, which, by the way, is a crazy YouTube video you all should watch. But this tree is still bare. Something has happened inside this tree, and no matter what the owner does, he doesn't seem able to coax a fig out of the empty branches. 
The years of this one tree doing nothing, producing nothing to be sold or eaten, means that this tree, it's time for this tree to go. But for three years of fruit-bearing age, and perhaps for ten years before that, the owner lets the tree stand, hoping, yearning, waiting for it to do what a fig tree was created to do. That, the waiting, is an act of grace. However, the grace of the owner will eventually collide with the bitter reality that no matter what the owner does, this tree is not going to get with the fig-bearing program. So he goes to his gardener and he asks him to explain why this tree is still taking up room at the orchard. It's a waste of nutrients and soil. It's an eyesore. Let's cut it down. But the gardener, who had probably been the one who planted that tree 13 years or so earlier, who had tended the soil and plucked the weeds and shooed away the animals trying to eat the young saplings, the gardener who took pride in the fruit being borne by the other trees and who was bothered by this empty tree, who daily may have walked by it and willed it to produce something, pleaded with the tree to blossom just one flower. The gardener hears the words, cut it down, and says, Sir, let it alone for one more year. Literally in Greek, he says, Lord, forgive this tree. He says, forgive this tree this year. Forgive it until I can dig around it and put manure on it. Maybe it makes fruit in the next season. And if not, then you can cut it down. The intercession of the gardener for this tree is another remarkable example of grace in this text. The gardener, more than anyone, knew that something was up with this tree. Something wasn't working, but still he pleads for forgiveness. He pleads for mercy. He pleads for another opportunity for this empty tree to bear fruit. Let me focus on it, the gardener says. Let me attend to it. Let me exhibit an absurd amount of attention to this barren tree. Let me see if I can coax one fig out of it. Maybe it will work. In the Greek, the mood of this text is one of uncertainty. It's neither a guarantee of success or a prediction of failure. It's just a, let's see what happens. If it doesn't work, then it won't be because the gardener and the owner didn't try everything and do everything possible. And the parable ends without giving us a clue about whether it worked. We're left in this orchard scene with the gardener dragging a shovel and a wheelbarrow of fertilizer over to this barren tree, and Jesus doesn't tell us if it works or not. And that's kind of the point. I think this parable is about the grace of God. I think this parable is about the love of Christ. I think this parable is about the Spirit's work in each of us to bear the fruit of God's kingdom. God, the vineyard owner, prepares the soil, plants an orchard, and then in grace waits expectantly long after he should for fruit to come forth in our lives. Christ, the gardener, lovingly devotes himself to we, his otherwise barren trees, and the Spirit's fertilizing power is placed around us, willing us to bear the fruit of God's kingdom. All of this with the hope that in these conditions, new life will burst from the branches of our fruitless fig trees. But will it? That is the question. 
to us today. In orchards, trees don't necessarily choose to bear fruit or not, but in the orchard of humanity, we most certainly do. The good news of the gospel is that all of the conditions for new life have already been provided for each of us. By God's grace, we live out our days. Through Christ's love, we are cultivated and rehabilitated, and through the Spirit's power, we are given an infusion of energy and nutrients that call forth fruit in our lives. But now what? Will we bear fruit? Will our lives stop being what they once were, and will they now resemble the peaceable, reconciling, humble, generous shape of life in God's kingdom? We did not affect our own salvation or redemption, but we are responsible for how we live in light of it. I think that's what Jesus means when he says the word repent. It's not a tear-filled, sorrow-filled prayer of confession Jesus necessarily has in mind. It's not even some sort of dramatic spiritual awakening or conversion that Jesus is talking about. When Jesus says, repent, here he's saying, change. Change your hearts and your minds. Change your lives. Change your actions and behaviors. Change your attitudes, your assumptions, your values, your priorities. Change your whole self in light of the present reality of the kingdom of God made known to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. And I don't think Jesus is talking about a future hell or eternal damnation when he says perish. He's talking about right now you will be a walking shell of a person with empty relationships and broken down structures in your life. You will be a sort of spiritual zombie. You'll perish on the inside if we are not willing to change ourselves in light of what God's kingdom is all about. So as we as a church continue to journey towards the cross of Christ and to the empty Easter tomb, we recognize that one of the first things we must do is to stop listening to the voices which are trying to lay the blame for this crisis or that tragedy at the feet of one individual. We have to stop listening to the voices that tell us we are innocent, they are guilty, we are blameless, they are wrong. We have to stop listening to the voices that tell us it's all their fault and not ours. Jesus reminds us today, for those who have ears to hear, that repentance is the first step towards resurrection. New life can only begin to take shape when we take careful stock of the withered plants on our vines. New life can only start when we seriously consider the many ways in which each of us might still be actively engaged in activities or attitudes that bear no resemblance to the shape of God's kingdom. Jesus reminds those of us on this Lenten journey that the path ahead is marked with turnouts where we must stop and reassess the things that we do. Each of us, each of us here needs to change from something. If you need help finding out what that is, ask the person who knows you the most. I'm sure they'd be happy to tell you. If we want to grow in Christian faith, then we must begin to address the ways our particular habits have started to grow like mold on our spiritual walls. Repentance is the process by which we start to change those things, and the good news is it can start today. It can start right now. It can start this Lord's Day. 
The scriptures teach us from Isaiah, come and seek God while he may be found. Call him while he's near. Let the wicked abandon their ways and the sinful abandon their schemes. Let them return to the Lord so he may have mercy on them. Let them return to our God for he is generous with forgiveness. Hear this, church. All of us, all of us here stand before a God who in God's holiness has every right to reject us. Yet who, in Jesus Christ, has made himself known to us as the gardener who will lovingly devote himself to us, who will labor to ensure that every necessary condition for new life is met, who will dig around each of us with the spade of his cross and who will place his own blood over our decaying roots and trunks, and who will bestow upon us the grace of a lifetime of years to grow the fruit of grace and mercy and love. That is the good news. The God we love and serve loves you, loves me, loves us. The God we worship and serve knows you by your name, knows me by my name, and invites us to know him also. As we continue down this Lenten journey, let us turn to God's paths and let us forsake the sin-soaked road that leads to destruction. I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let the church say,